最前沿的科学研究。This is Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. I'm Layla, and I'm Mehdi, and we're your Science Rehashed co-hosts. In this episode, we have interviewed Dr. Thomas McElrath. Dr. McElrath is an MD/PhD in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the Brigham Women and Women's Hospital. Dr. McElrath is also the PI on the LifeCodes Pregnancy Biobank, a multi-center project that has been recruiting for over 14 years and presently has data on over 6,000 pregnancies. In his recent work published in Nature, Dr. McElrath has leveraged these data to shed light on normal pregnancy progression to develop new biomarkers that can be used to diagnose syndromes months before clinical presentation. This new class of biomarkers has enormous potential for developing non-invasive diagnostic methods. Welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. McElrath. As per our tradition, we would like for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. So. I'm Tom McElrath. I am a professor of reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School, and have been an attending in maternal fetal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital for longer than I want to remember. Uh, probably going over 25 years now. Additionally, I am an associate professor in epidemiology at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health, and have run a biobank, basically one of the few pregnancy-related biobanks in North America. And do you call this uh, pregnancy biobank life codes? We do, we do. My my boss is a geneticist, and she got to pick the name. <laughs> well, that's a very nice name, yeah. Oh, fascinating! We have a lot of questions actually about life codes and your research. But before that, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into perinatal and reproductive epidemiology in the first place? Um, a long time ago, I. Graduated college and wasn't quite sure really which direction I wanted to go into, and I didn't think that, you know, I really wanted to go straight into professional schooling at that time.、Uh, so I got a Fulbright scholarship and went and lived in Bangladesh for almost two years, working in a、um, project in rural Bangladesh that had, had as part of its core, as part of its main mission, was looking at maternal child health. And I began to realize that on the global stage, maternal child health really has not been as well represented as infectious disease-related morbidity or you know, other more classic forms of、uh, health-related issues. And with that in mind, it, it it seemed like this would be a great area to begin to dig into. When I returned to the states,、uh, was then got into an MD/PhD program ultimately. Uh, graduated medical school and then pursued this fellowship in maternal fetal medicine, but it was really out of a sense that this is an underrep and still still remains an underrepresented area of、uh, related research and inquiry. In a nutshell, that was really how I got involved in this area. And why do you think this field is underrepresented? Where does the problem lie? You know, there has been a historic hesitancy to want to work with. Issues surrounding pregnancy for fear of causing damage or potential 
defect to the baby. There's been some very cloudy moral thinking on that issue. I think we're much more clear-headed about the need to include pregnant women in studies and purposeful research now than we might have been in the past. I think that there's also been a bit of a tendency socially not to include pregnant women as a as an area that that or not even to recognize pregnancy as an area that really does need some uh, inquiry and health related research and systems research and outcomes research. I mean, the whole spectrum of need. You know, most pregnant women are are young and they're healthy and they, they don't really seem to be somebody who who might on the face of it, need the same kind of uh, health uh, inputs as as folks who are older or, or folks who are very young, for example, or, or children. So I think we've had a cultural tendency not to really view this as an area that is as deeply in need of, of health resources. And then, you know, to be quite honest about it, I think there's probably been some element of misogyny in our society where, you know, there's there's a famous older saying that if you want your grant funded, Propose a disease that that affects a 60-year-old congressman, and you know we've had a lot of funding for heart disease and cancer. I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that, but somewhere in the background, I think there may be some misaligning of purposes that may have had some bias with regard to gender perception and, and these types of issues. I was just saying to Mehdi beforehand, I was so excited to be interviewing you because you don't often see MD-PhDs who go in and do research in maternal-fetal medicine or fetal health or maternal health. So it's very exciting and I hope it continues to grow. I had a question about your specific research interests. So your interests span from exploring the effects of endocrine disrupting environmental exposures on pregnancy outcome to the utility of exosomes in predicting adverse pregnancy outcomes. How did you choose to focus on these particular areas? You know, it's... you know, how one chooses to focus on a scientific area of inquiry is a little bit, there's a little bit of, of curiosity and a little bit of serendipity. And I think this pathway actually probably describes both of those. What both of those areas of inquiry have in common is the utility of this biobank as a platform, that we have large numbers of biosamples available to answer questions that really can't be answered, at least in a human population, through other means of inquiry. I mean, we can always look at animal models, we can always make inferences, but in both of those areas, animal models can only get us so far. One of the major issues with with pregnancy, and particularly human pregnancy, is that it's very unique. Humans really have a very unique form of placentation and pregnancy that is not found in other mammals and even might not be completely analogous to what we see in uh, in our closest relatives among the great apes. So the analogies are not as, as immediate as you might find for other forms of medical inquiry. That said, having a large platform to look at changes in, in biomarkers across pregnancy led itself, lent itself to looking at the effects of endocrine-disrupting chemicals on pregnancy, and then also lent itself to looking at the uh, development of biomarkers for a variety of pregnancy outcomes. And they, they really are very similar sets of questions. I mean, they, they both get at an issue of what can we do to make pregnancy safer and better? If we can develop biomarkers to look for adverse outcomes, uh, that not only helps us bring patients into appropriate levels of care more quickly or sooner in, their more, in, a, in a more personalized fashion in their, in their uh, care, 
but it also helps suggest what might be the underlying systems that could be modifiable on a therapeutic level. So although these two areas seem like they might be distantly related, they actually have a very common core of underlying inquiry. Absolutely. And we can say that form follows function, right? So you've collected these data and this allows you then to dive deeper into these particular questions that all relate to one another. Isn't that frequently how science moves? I mean, we, you have a new telescope, so you discover the moons around Jupiter. The platform that frequently drives the inquiry that then drives the discovery that then drives the interpretation. The way I think about life codes is not as a project, but more as a platform, almost like a telescope to an astronomer. It's something that lets us ask questions and then then answer it. It's like the Hubble telescope of pregnancy almost. Yeah, absolutely. I had one more question before we we delve into the paper. Um, and that question is very close to my heart. Besides being a scientist, you're also a clinician and you directly manage the delivery of over 200 babies per year. And so how do you balance that? How do you combine your research and clinical practice? And obviously, this is a very selfish question as an MD-PhD in training. It is not always easy to combine the two. Now, nobody in either medicine or research or transitional medicine would ever say that their job is easy. I mean, and it goes without saying, we all work a lot, we all write a lot, we all are putting in way more time than you know we, we would otherwise have bargained for. So that's that's a given. I think as a physician scientist, you have to be prepared, prepared to make some compromises. One is that it is going to take longer in your training. Uh, that can sometimes be a bit of a disappointment because, you know, folks want to move on. They want to start families. They want to buy houses. And this could be a little bit harder to do if you're still working on your degree. And then in addition to that, having to do the clinical training, it can be a little more difficult too. To I look at my PhD colleagues who have um, I won't say free time, but less structured time sometimes in the ability to write and dedicate a significant block of time to writing, uh, grant writing and paper writing is a bit different than if you see patients for three solid days out of the week uh, and then and then need to book OR time. Feels like a series of compromises you make between you know how much you'd like to be devoting to your your science and how much you'd love to be devoting to your patients. That said, I think it offers a unique ability to have your finger directly on the pulse of pertinent questions and pertinent priorities, both for patients and clinicians. I have worked with many, many PhDs who are brilliant individuals, but who just don't have the exposure to patients to understand how does a disease present? What is the patient's priority in the presentation of that disease? How, you know, how common is this outcome? What are the things we should really be looking at in order to really have an impactful project or impactful outcome? Uh, on the flip side, I have many, many dedicated clinical colleagues who just don't speak the language of research in a way that can then make it functional. So it's both a blessing and a little bit of a handicap to have one foot in each camp. But I think at the end of the day, you become somebody who can actually speak both languages and translate more effectively from what are clinical imperatives and priorities into potential research outcomes and abilities. I think that was so elegant. It makes me really excited to continue to integrate clinic and research. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll come back soon to talk more about your research. 
Hi, listeners. I hope you are enjoying our episodes. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Sciencely Hashed. Listeners, if you also want to ask questions during our next episodes, don't forget to post them on Twitter at Science Rehashed on one of our next interview tweets. Well, it's time to talk more about your recent work now. You have recently published a paper in the Journal of Nature titled RNA Profiles Reveal Signatures of Future Health and Disease in Pregnancy. And in this paper, you presented a new diagnostic method for preeclampsia, a condition that affects up to one in 12 pregnancies and represents a cause of maternal morbidity. Can you talk a bit about the motivation of this study? Really what it was, was the development of a separate platform upon which multiple testing outcomes could be based. And then we used preeclampsia as the test case. What we were really doing here was validating an idea that had been developed in an earlier publication that you can look at the patterns of cell-free RNA expression across pregnancy and that these patterns will change in a time-dependent fashion. And that if you can document the normal patterns in a large enough population with enough diversity in its its background, so you're sure you're getting a a reasonable cross-section of the human experience, you can then develop a map for how uh, pregnancy might progress under normal circumstances. And the first portion of the paper, if you notice, deals with the ability to time gestational age based on a uh, RNA expression. So what we're looking at there is you can actually, to within plus or minus two weeks, based on the pattern of cell-free RNA that are, is in a, in a sample, you can tell essentially where the pregnancy is in its, uh, in its course, in its, in its timeline. And that allows a couple of things. It allows us another means of dating pregnancy, which is always useful because ultrasound is not always available. And uh, the accuracy of ultrasound decreases with increasing gestation. So this may provide another means of enhancing that or dating a pregnancy in general. But really what you need to think of it is as a RNA-based roadmap of normal pregnancy. We then realized, with that being the case, if we look at where some of these gene sets were coming from, they seem to be clearly expressed from fetal tissues, not just placental tissues, but fetal tissues. So part the next piece of the paper starts to look at the potential ability to do RNA-based diagnostics on the fetus itself, not on the placenta, not on the mother, but on the baby. That is an area that needs more clarification and development, but is potentially very exciting that we can, with a minimally invasive test to the mother, go ahead and get information on the baby. And before we move on, I would like really to clarify a couple of things. Why cell-free RNA and not DNA? So it's it's a little bit of a misnomer that it's cell-free. It is free of cell, but it's actually most often embedded in a in an exosome or a, or a lipid bilayer microparticle of some kind. You know, actual RNA floating around as a as a naked molecule in plasma has a very very short half life, and and you know it doesn't take much to understand why that would need to be the case. It's kind of dangerous to have unregulated signal floating around in in anyone's context. But once it's actually in a, in a vesicle, in a lipid bilayer vesicle, it then becomes actually quite robust. 
and can also be targeted uh, based on uh, the protein coding or receptor status of the vesicle itself. So now you start to be able to tap into what's going on at the cellular level between, with communication between cells, purposeful cellular communication. And so what we're doing here is actually tapping into some of the cell-to-cell communication that occurs progressively across pregnancy. So why not DNA? Well, DNA isn't really involved in that level of communication at the same frequency. Cells don't try to modify each other's behavior based on a DNA signal. It's almost always on a protein or an RNA-based signal. And in this platform, we're looking at the RNA-based portion of that signal. Does Does that make sense? So really what we're doing is we're tapping into a fundamental level of uh, cellular communication and listening to the conversation <clears throat> and then have normalized what that conversation is as a function of gestational age and then can determine deviation from that normal. And that's where the test with preeclampsia came in. We began to think if we can, if we now know what a normal pattern of RNA expression in a cell-free level looks like, we should be able to start to determine what deviation from normal looks like at a preclinical level. And that's, in fact, what happened with the uh, with the test for preeclampsia. I think before we get too far into it, I'm realizing we uh, haven't asked you to define a couple of key terms. Um, so we'd love to hear you define what cell-free RNA is and why it's important, and then just a little brief overview of preeclampsia before we go on. So cell-free RNA, that's the easier part. It is um, literally RNA that is not contained within a cell. It tends to be contained within a vesicle of some kind for the reasons we just talked about, that it has an exceedingly short half-life if the RNA is exposed to plasma itself. Um, but within a, within a lipid bilayer vesicle, um, it's actually quite robust and is in a storage and sampling capacity or pathologic sense, but then also robust within the physiology of of an individual's biology and circulation and so forth. So it is basically, it says cell-free, that's true. It is free of actual cells, but it is not sort of a, a, a naked RNA molecule swimming around in plasma. It is actually encased in a lipid envelope. And it's just isolating those envelopes and then sequencing the RNA that is, is the, the trick to the, to the diagnostic. Preeclampsia is a bit of a bigger uh, undertaking. Um, the reason being is that we don't completely understand what preeclampsia is. It affects about 7% of women in the United States, uh, internationally about 5%. In some portions of the world, incidence may be as high as 25 to 30% of pregnancy. So there's a lot of variation. It is a disease that is unique to humans. We don't really share it even with our closest relatives among the great apes, although there is some wow. controversy about whether gorillas get preeclampsia, but they certainly don't seem to get something at around 7% of the pregnancies. It's a disease that seems to be characterized by dysfunction of the maternal endothelium, so the, the cell layer that lines the vascular tree. And that then permeates, it, it presents itself clinically in some very stereotypic fashions. The first one being an increase in maternal blood pressure. The second one being an increase in maternal protein loss because the endothelium lines that or, or modifies the filtering capacity of the kidney. It can be seen by increased organ dysfunction, uh, such as increased dysfunction in the, the liver, in a very severe case uh, in the in the cardiopulmonary circuit, and then also uh, in the most dramatic case in the central nervous system, where ultimate eclampsia or seizures can be 
a, a severe form of the disease. It's a disease that has haunted humans probably for thousands and thousands of years. You can find evidence of discussions of the seizures and pregnancy going back into the Egyptian and Greek uh, medical traditions. So uh, it, it's been a it's been a bit of a, a mystery that still persists. But you know we're starting to make uh, progress in realizing what it is and and trying to be able to diagnose it and potentially treat it. That would ultimately be a goal. How is preeclampsia treated now? Unfortunately, the only way to treat preeclampsia now is to deliver the pregnancy. It seems to be fostered by some interaction between placenta, the trophoblast, and the mother, and that removing the placenta, which invariably means removing the baby as well, uh, does bring about resolution of the disease. We're beginning to learn, however, that women who have had preeclampsia are at tremendously increased risk of later life cardiovascular disease. And it's not presently clear, is that because they had a predisposition to some type of cardiovascular disease, or is it because exposure to this condition potentiated that risk? And it's not clear. Some of the work right now is beginning to suggest it may be a little more of the latter than the former, but we don't know. This is really a rapidly evolving area of inquiry. This seems like a much easier test to administer than ultrasound per se, or more complex tests. But I'm wondering about what sort of facilities might be needed to extract the RNA and actually administer this test. This isn't technology that is new. I would imagine that it could then be evolved into a series of centers where the specimens would be sent and then communicated back to an individual clinic, which is what happens in the uh, cell-free DNA screening that goes on in pregnancy right now and in a lot of of cancer-based screening. Uh, Ultimately, the machines that are running this, the sequencers that are running this, they're not novel, they're commercially available. And you could imagine that a hospital would at some point have this in their clinical lab, but you've gotten way beyond my my business expertise to, 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 to be able to answer it. Well, that's very exciting. And do you think this will become a standard test in the future? Ultimately, what I think will happen is this will be combined with existing means of risk stratification, whether that's ultrasound or clinical history, demographic-based risk stratification on on the individual level. I think where we're going is, and this is something I say to my residents, I think when they, you know, when they reach their stage of the career, their careers that I'm in right now as a senior physician, the way we practice prenatal care and obstetrics will be radically different. And I think the reason it's going to be radically different is because we will be able to highly personalize each individual woman's risk of a variety of outcomes. It might be her risk of preeclampsia, her risk of gestational diabetes, her risk of spontaneous preterm birth, her risk of placenta accreta, a variety of outcomes, and then personalize her prenatal care. Now we sort of treat everybody with the same brush for prenatal care. We bring them in at the same time and we essentially assume they're going to have a more or less similar pattern of risk. Well, what if we could actually make that much more refined and say for this woman who has an increased risk of preeclampsia, we put her into a clinic specializing in preeclampsia. We know she has a risk of preeclampsia and much less of a risk of diabetes, much less of a risk of preterm birth. You know, ultimately, the highly personalized and individualized level of care would hopefully then bring about uh, better outcomes. Hi, listeners. If you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping rate show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. Dr. McElrath, I'd like to talk now about more methodological aspects of your work. In particular, how did you deal with different sources of variability in the data collection, given that you had many different cohorts? And how did you account for this in your model? For example, did you look at batch size effects and how did you account for those? Um, Batch effects, when you're looking at different cohorts, are absolutely an issue. And the paper in the methods section, which is you know, I'd love to say we all download all of the methods for every paper and read them in detail, but in this that is the extensive portion of the methods supplement to this paper is normalizing the distribution of outcome or markers within each cohort so that we are minimizing the potential for effects. And then we go on to ended sensitivity testing to look and make sure that there wasn't obvious residual batch effects for the um, the outcome. It's a very good question. It's a very technical question, but there was a lot of effort put into trying to overlay these these different cohorts in a fashion that didn't allow one of them to become dominant or or another one to become neglected. And what about the effect of other variables like race, for example? That was a very exciting outcome. You know, there's a there's an ongoing controversy right now in many areas of health-related risk calculation that whether we should include race as a variable or whether the inclusion of race is in fact a latent form of racism. The inclusion of race may actually speak to underlying health inequity. What we did was we assembled the data and then included the markers that we had found for risk of preeclampsia and then found that in the equations that described the risk, the explanatory power of race itself disappeared. And, you know, we then returned the data and did it again and returned it and did it again. And it was persistently not there. And that suggested to us that we were possibly getting at the real underlying biology. The genes that we were identifying as being active in promoting a risk of preeclampsia may be the ones that might segregate differently by maternal race but that we were actually looking at the core biology independent of the external label based on racial or ethnic background. So we were quite excited to find that we were able to describe our data and our risk without having to rely on these, you know, more conventional kind of tropes in medicine, such as, such as race or age. It it gave us a sense that we were getting to an underlying, potentially getting close to an underlying mechanism. It was something that we were very happy to see because we didn't want to be contributing to this tradition of labeling. And in your study, you showed that the test has 75% sensitivity. This is incredible. How sensitive do you think this method is in real life data and how far is it from being used in the clinics? Oh, that's an excellent question. And that's, that's a question that we've actually been asked in multiple different contexts. You know, when you're doing exploratory level research, you do bias your sample choice towards extremes. You know, if you're going to find something, you really want your cases to be very homogeneous and your control set to be very homogeneous, and you'd love them to be very heterogeneous from each other, meaning you want the disease to look a lot like itself among your cases, and you look want the healthy people to look a lot like themselves, and you don't want any crossover in between them, because that's going to 
help you find the potential underlying signal if signal exists. It also helps you do that when you may not have very large sample sizes, which is frequently a complication of this type of work is you don't have a very robust number of samples. Uh, and frequently that's a problem with, with pregnancy related research. You basically give yourself a pass at the first discovery level research to look at these very artificially heterogeneous populations in which you enrich the incidence of the, of the disease in your, in your trial data set. Once you identify those possible differences, whether it's in protein-based markers, genetic-based markers, or RNA, it now becomes incumbent upon you to go back and validate that those differences persist in a population that represents the true underlying incidence of the disease. And that's the level that this is at right now with an approach to secondary validation. It's a bit premature for folks to say, well, we've got a successful test. Uh, we found it in our one to two case control ratio, and now we're going to you know, take it to the clinic, it needs to be validated. And I think that is what you're getting at is that we, you know, we gave ourselves a little bit of a boost there to, to, to find the difference. But once we found it, you have to go back and validate that it actually works in the real world. And, and that's an iterative process. And that's the process this is under right now. So it is on its way towards becoming a clinical tool, but not quite yet ready to be a clinical tool. My follow-up question then is, is there a therapeutic intervention that would benefit from such a test? Oh, yeah. I, I think that the, that is a, that's a fascinating question, and that's one we get a lot. Um, I think your therapeutic potential exists at three different levels of organization. One is obviously the individual, and there already are therapeutic interventions. Something as simple as the provision of low-dose aspirin has been shown to decrease a woman's risk of preeclampsia. Potentially the provision of something like a, a heparin as an anticoagulant might also have the same, although that's a little more controversial. So there are already therapeutic interventions that are available, not to mention moving the woman to a specialized clinic, providing her the resources so that she can you know, take ownership of her condition as well, maybe a blood pressure at cuff, uh, or maybe increased clinical education and things that will empower her as well. So there are a lot we can already do with our conventional technology, clinical technology as it exists. And it, it really relies on identifying who is at risk. The second level is the level of the institution. You know, it would be the level of high risk obstetrical care is not uniformly distributed across the United States. In fact, it's quite patchy in exactly the areas you'd expect it. There's a lot in the Bay Area of San Francisco, a lot in Boston, there's a fair number in the, around the big cities in the U.S., but there's whole states in the U.S. where they're very limited access to high-risk perinatal care. So at the institutional level, being able to have a woman who knows what, if she's not immediately living in downtown Boston, you know, what would her plan be if she began to get ill with preeclampsia? Where is she going to go? Can she already have that sort of escape plan built in with her and her providers that she can get the care more quickly? So that would be another institutional level of provision. The final level is really the innovative level that if we know who is at increased risk of preeclampsia, it's going to be a lot easier to recruit and to efficiently perform the validation studies for additional biomarkers and then additional therapeutics. You would need, I think I did the back of the envelope calculation, that if it's 7% incidence of you wanted to have 1,000 women in your case set, in your prospective study, you'd need to recruit over close to 50,000 subjects. 
But if you could boost that to a 21% incidence, you now need only to recruit about seven, five to 7,000 subjects. So you can see where the ability to really start to look at innovative therapeutic models and, and biomarker models may be enhanced by having this as a, as a type of a pretest. And finally, you know, we're beginning to suggest what systems may, we were talking a minute ago about the biology of the disease. Well, that may suggest that there might already be medications that might be repurposed to act on these systems. And can we, can we employ some systems biological approach to looking at what of these networks that are creating this vulnerability might be modifiable? And does that then suggest therapeutic interventions? There are already multiple potential medications that could be repurposed into the preeclampsia sphere, and this may make that whole that whole endeavor more efficient. So there's a lot that 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 knowing someone's pretest probability of 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 preeclampsia does really open up in the healthcare realm. What do you think is the role of non-invasive liquid biopsies in your field? Tremendous. I mean we already are, we're early adopters in obstetrics. We, there's the the whole non, you know, we used to do uh, something like 600 amniocentesis a year at the Brigham and Women's for Downs screening and diagnosis. And now we're down to around somewhere below 60 per year because of the, the whole innovation wow. in, uh, in non-invasive perinatal diagnosis that's frequently DNA-based, not RNA-based. But So I think obstetrics has been early adopters of this whole, this whole concept. And then we are, um, I, I see this as the way forward, not just for pregnancy care. I think. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you. We can't wait to hear what you do next. Well, thank you both very much, and thank you for your interest. Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a Science Rehash episode? Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SR episode rehashed. That was fantastic, Mehdi. I really enjoy these conversations where philosophy and science get together. And I truly love the telescope metaphor. Completely agree here, Leila. And it's very exciting to learn about scientific advancements that open so many options in terms of both scientific discovery and therapeutic intervention. By the way, Leila, with that telescope, can you see what our next interview is? One second. Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be the brain, Mehdi, your favorite organ. Yes, I can see it clearly now. We'll interview Alberto Iscario to talk about his most recent research on multiple sclerosis. Nice. Listeners, don't miss our next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Chiara Maffei, edited by Rakuza Kanyemba, and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'd also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed.